Chapter Fifteen of the Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Uncommercial Traveller by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fifteen. Nurses' Stories. There are not many places that I find it more agreeable to revisit when I am in an idle mood than some places to which I have never been, for my acquaintance with those spots is of such long standing and has ripened into an intimacy of so affectionate a nature that I take a particular interest in assuring myself that they are unchanged. I never was in Robinson Crusoe's island, and yet I frequently returned there. The colony he established on it soon faded away, and it is uninhabited by any descendants of the grave and courteous Spaniards, or of Will Atkins and the other mutineers, and has relapsed into its original condition. Not a twig of its wicker houses remains. Its goats have long run wild again its screaming parrots would darken the sun with a cloud of many flaming colors if a gun were fired there no face is ever reflected in the waters of the little creek where friday swam across when pursued by his two brother cannibals with sharpened stomachs after comparing notes with other travelers who have similarly revisited the island and conscientiously inspected it i have satisfied myself that it contains no vestige of Mr. Atkins's domesticity or theology, though his track on the memorable evening of his landing to set his captain ashore when he was decoyed about and round and about until it was dark, and his boat was stove, and his strength and spirits failed him, is yet plainly to be traced. So was the hilltop, on which Robinson was struck dumb with joy when the reinstated captain pointed to the ship riding within half a mile of the shore that was to bear him away in the nine-and-twentieth year of his seclusion in that lonely place so is the sandy beach on which the memorable footstep was impressed and where the savages hauled up their canoes when they came ashore for those dreadful public dinners which led to a dancing worse than speech-making so is the cave where the flaring eyes of the old goat made such a goblin appearance in the dark. So is the sight of the hut, where Robinson lived with the dog and the parrot and the cat, where he endured those first agonies of solitude, which, strange to say, never involved any ghostly fancies, a circumstance so very remarkable that perhaps he left out something in writing his record round hundreds of such objects hidden in the dense tropical foliage the tropical sea breaks evermore and over them the tropical sky saving in the short rainy season shines bright and cloudless neither was i ever belated among wolves on the borders of france and spain nor did i ever when night was closing in and the ground was covered with snow draw up my little company among some fell trees which served as a breastwork and there fire a train of gunpowder so dexterously that suddenly we had three or four score blazing wolves illuminating the darkness around us nevertheless 
I occasionally go back to that dismal region and perform the feat again, when indeed to smell the singeing and frying of the wolves of fire, and to see them setting one another alight as they rush and tumble, and to behold them rolling in the snow, vainly attempting to put themselves out, and to hear their howlings taken up by all the echoes as well as by all the unseen wolves within the woods makes me tremble. I was never in the robber's cave where Gil Blast lived, but I often go back there and find the trapdoor just as heavy to raise as it used to be, while that wicked old disabled black lies everlasting cursing in bed. I was never in Don Quixote's study where he read his books of chivalry until he rose and hacked at imaginary giants and then refreshed himself with great draughts of water. Yet you couldn't move a book in it without my knowledge or with my consent. I was never, thank heaven, in company with a little old woman who hobbled out of the chest and told the merchant, Abuda, to go in search of the talisman of Oramanes. And yet I make it my business to know that she is well preserved and as intolerable as ever. I was never at the school where the boy Horatio Nelson got out of bed to steal the pears, not because he wanted any, but because every other boy was afraid. Yet I have several times been back to this academy to see him let down out of the window with a sheet. So with Damascus and Baghdad and Brabdingnag, which has the curious fate of being usually misspelt when written, and Lilliput and Laputa and the Nile and Abyssinia and the Ganges and the North Pole and many hundreds of places I was never at them yet it is an affair of my life to keep them intact and I am always going back to them but when I was in Dullborough one day revisiting the associations of my childhood as recorded in previous pages of these notes my experience in this wise was made quite inconsiderable and of no account by the quantity of places and people, utterly impossible places and people, but nonetheless alarmingly real, that I found I had been introduced to by my nurse before I was six years old, and used to be forced to go back to at night without at all wanting to go. If we all knew our own minds in a more enlarged sense, than the popular acceptation of that phrase, I suspect we should find our nurses responsible for most of the dark corners we are forced to go back to against our wills. The first diabolical character who intruded himself on my peaceful youth, as I call to mind that day at Dullborough, was a certain Captain Murderer. This wretch must have been an offshoot of the Bluebeard family, but I had no suspicion of the consanguinity in those times. His warning name would seem to have awakened no general prejudice against him, for he was admitted into the best society and possessed immense wealth. Captain Murderer's mission was matrimony, and the gratification of a cannibal appetite with tender brides. On his marriage morning, he always caused both sides of the way to church to be planted with curious flowers, and when his bride said, Dear Captain Murderer, I ever saw flowers like this before, what are they called? 
he answered, they are called garnish for house lamb, and laughed at his ferocious practical joke in a horrid manner, disquieting the minds of the noble bridal company with a very sharp show of teeth, then displayed for the first time. He made love in a coach and six, and married in a coach and twelve, and all his horses were milk-white horses with one red spot on the back which he caused to be hidden by the harness. For the spot would come there, though every horse was milk-white when Captain Murderer bought him, and the spot was young bride's blood. To this terrific point I am indebted for my first personal experience of a shudder and cold beads on the forehead. When Captain Murderer had made an end of feasting and revelry, and had dismissed the noble guests, and was alone with his wife on the day month after their marriage, it was his whimsical custom to produce a golden rolling pin and a silver pie-board. Now there was this special feature in the captain's courtships, that he always asked if the young lady could make pie-crust, and if she couldn't by nature or education she was taught. Well, when the bride saw Captain Murderer produce the golden rolling pin, and silver pie-board she remembered this, and turned up her laced silk sleeves to make a pie. The captain brought out a silver pie-dish of immense capacity, and the captain brought out flour and butter and eggs and all the things needful except the inside of the pie. Of materials for the staple of the pie itself the captain brought out none. And then said the lovely bride, Dear Captain Murderer, what pie is this to be? He replied, A meat pie. Then said the lovely bride, Dear Captain Murderer, I see no meat. The captain humorously retorted, Look in the glass. She looked in the glass, but still she saw no meat. And then the captain roared with laughter, and suddenly frowning and drawing his sword, bade her roll out the crust. So she rolled out the crust dropping large tears upon it all the time because he was so cross. And when she had lined the dish with crust, and had cut the crust all ready to fit the top, the captain called out, I see the meat in the glass. And the bride looked up at the glass just in time to see the captain cutting her head off. And he chopped her in pieces, and peppered her, and salted her, and put her in the pie, and sent it to the bakers, and ate it all, and picked the bones. Captain Murderer went on in this way, prospering exceedingly, until he came to choose a bride from two twin sisters, and at first didn't know which to choose, for though one was fair and the other dark, they were both equally beautiful, but the fair twin loved him, and the dark twin hated him, so he chose the fair one. The dark twin would have prevented the marriage if she could, but she couldn't. However, on the night before it, much suspecting Captain Murderer, she stole out and climbed his garden wall, and looked in at his window through a chink in the shutter, and saw him having his teeth filed sharp. Next day she listened all day, and heard him make his joke about the house lamb. And that day, month, he had the paste rolled out, and cut the fair twin's head off, and chopped her in pieces, 
and peppered her and salted her and put her in the pie sent it to the bakers and ate it all and picked the bones now the dark twin had had her suspicions much increased by the filing of the captain's teeth and again by the house lamb joke putting all things together when he gave out that her sister was dead she divined the truth and determined to be revenged so she went up to captain murderer's house and knocked at the knocker and pulled at the bell and when the captain came to the door said dear captain murderer marry me next for i always loved you and was jealous of my sister the captain took it as a compliment and made a polite answer and the marriage was quickly arranged on the night before it the bride again climbed to his window and again saw him having his teeth filed sharp at this sight she laughed such a terrible laugh at the chink in the shutter that the captain's blood curdled and he said i hope nothing has disagreed with me at that she laughed again a still more terrible laugh and the shutter was opened and search made but she was nimbly gone and there was no one next day they went to the church in a coach and twelve and were married and that day month she rolled the pie crust out and captain murderer cut her head off and chopped her in pieces and peppered her and salted her and put her in the pie and sent it to the bakers and ate it all and picked the bones but before she began to roll out the paste she had taken a deadly poison of a most awful character distilled from toad's eyes and spider's knees and captain murderer had hardly picked her last bone when he began to swell and to turn blue and to be all over spots and to scream and he went on swelling and turning bluer and becoming more all over spots and screaming until he reached from floor to ceiling and from wall to wall and then at one o'clock in the morning he blew up with a loud explosion at the sound of it all the milk-white horses in the stables broke their halters and went mad and then they galloped over everybody in captain murderer's house beginning with the family blacksmith who had filed his teeth until the whole were dead and then they galloped away hundreds of times did i hear this legend of captain murderer in my early youth and added hundreds of times when there was a mental compulsion upon me in bed to peep in at his window as the dark twin peeped and to revisit his horrible house and look at him in his blue and spotty and screaming stage as he reached from floor to ceiling and from wall to wall the young woman who brought me acquainted with captain murderer had a fiendish enjoyment of my terrors and used to begin i remember as a sort of introductory overture by clawing the air with both hands and uttering a long low hollow groan so acutely did i suffer from this ceremony in combination with this infernal captain that i sometimes used to plead i thought i was hardly strong enough and old enough to hear the story again just yet but she never spared me one word of it and indeed commanded the awful chalice to my lips as the only preservative known to science against the black cat a weird and glaring-eyed supernatural tom who was reputed to prowl about the world by night sucking the breath of infancy and who was endowed with a special thirst as i was given to understand for mine this female bard 
may she have been repaid my debt of obligation to her in the matter of nightmares and perspirations reappears in my memory as the daughter of a shipwright her name was mercy though she had none on me there was something of a shipbuilding flavor in the following story as it always recurs to me in a vague association with calomel pills i believe it to have been reserved for dull nights when i was low with medicine there was once a shipwright and he wrought in a government yard and his name was chips and his father's name before him was chips and his father's name before him was chips and they were all chipses and chips the father had sold himself to the devil for an iron pot and a bushel of tenpenny nails and half a ton of copper and a rat that could speak and chips the grandfather had sold himself to the devil for an iron pot and a bushel of tenpenny nails and half ton of copper and a rat that could speak and chips the great grandfather had disposed of himself in the same direction and on the same terms and the bargain had run in the family for a long long time so one day when young chips was at work in the dock slip all alone down in the dark hold of an old seventy-four that was hailed up for repairs the devil presented himself and remarked a lemon has pips and a yard has ships and i'll have chips i don't know why but this fact of the devil's expressing himself in rhyme was peculiarly trying to me chips looked up when he heard the words and there he saw the devil with saucer eyes that squinted on a terrible great scale and that struck out sparks of blue fire continually and whenever he winked his eyes showers of blue sparks came out and his eyelashes made a clattering like flint and steels striking lights and hanging over one of his arms by the handle was an iron pot and under that arm was a bushel of tenpenny nails and under his other arm was a half ton of copper and sitting on one of his shoulders was a rat that could speak so the devil said again a lemon has pips and a yard has ships and i'll have chips the invariable effect of this alarming tautology on the part of the evil spirit was to deprive me of my senses for some moments so chips answered never a word but went on with his work what are you doing chips said the rat that could speak i'm putting in new planks where you and your gang have eaten old away said chips but we'll eat them too said the rat that could speak and we'll let in the water and drown the crew and we'll eat them too chips being only a shipwright and not a man of war's man said you're welcome to it but he couldn't keep his eyes off the half ton of copper or the bushel of tenpenny nails for nails and copper are a shipwright's sweethearts and shipwrights will run away with them whenever they can so the devil said i see what you're looking at chips you'd better strike the bargain you know the terms your father before you was well acquainted with them so were your grandfather and great-grandfather before him says chips i like the copper and i like the nails and i don't mind the pot but i don't like the rat says the devil fiercely you can't have the metal without him and he's a curiosity i'm going chips afraid of losing a half ton of copper and the bushel of nails then said give us hold so he got the copper 
and the nails, and the pot, and the rat that could speak, and the devil vanished. Chips sold the copper, and he sold the nails, and he would have sold the pot, but whenever he offered it for sale, the rat was in it, and the dealers dropped it, and would have nothing to say to the bargain. So Chips resolved to kill the rat, and being at work in the yard one day with a great kettle of hot pitch on one side of him, and the iron pot with the rat in it on the other, he turned the scalding pitch into the pot and filled it full. Then he kept his eye upon it till it cooled and hardened, and then he let it stand for twenty days, and then he heated the pitch again and turned it back into the kettle, and then he sank the pot in water for twenty days more, and then he got the smelters to put it in the furnace for twenty days more, and then they gave it him out red-hot and looking like red-hot glass instead of iron. Yet there was the rat in it, just the same as ever, and the moment it caught his eye it said, with a jeer, A lemon has pips, and a yard has ships, and I'll have chips. For this refrain I had waited since its last appearance with inexpressible horror, which now culminated. Chips now felt certain in his own mind that the rat would stick to him. The rat answering his thoughts said, I will like pitch. Now as the rat leaped out of the pot when it had spoken and made off, Chips began to hope that it wouldn't keep its word. But a terrible thing happened next day, for when dinner-time came and the dock-bell rang to strike work, he put his rule into the long pocket at the side of his trousers, and there he found a rat, not that rat, but another rat, and in his hat he found another and in his pocket-handkerchief another, and in the sleeves of his coat when he pulled it on to go to dinner two more, and from that time he found himself so frightfully intimate with all the rats in the yard that they climbed up his legs when he was at work, and sat on his tools when he used them, and they could all speak to one another, and he understood what they said and they got into his lodging, and into his bed, and into his teapot, and into his beer, and into his boots, and he was going to be married to a corn-chandler's daughter, and when he gave her a work-box he had himself made for her, a rat jumped out of it, and when he put his arm round her waist a rat clung about her, so the marriage was broken off, though the bands were already twice put up, which the parish clerk well remembers, for as he handed the book to the clergyman for the second time of asking, a large fat rat ran over the leaf. By this time a special cascade of rats was rolling down my back, and the whole of my small listening person was overrun with them. At intervals ever since I have been morbidly afraid of my own pocket, lest my exploring hand should find a specimen or two of those vermin in it. You may believe that all this was very terrible to Chips, but even all this was not the worst. He knew besides what the rats were doing, wherever they were, so sometimes he would cry aloud when he was at his club at night, Oh, keep the rats out of the convict's burying ground, don't let them do that, or there's one of them at the cheese downstairs, or there's two of them smelling at the baby in the garret, or other things of that sort. At last he was voted mad, and lost his work in the yard, and could get no other work. But King George wanted men. So before very long he got pressed for a sailor, 
and so was taken off in a boat one evening to his ship lying at spithead ready to sail and so the first thing he made out in her as he got near her was the figurehead of the old seventy-four where he had seen the devil she was called the argonaut and they rode right under the bowsprit where the figurehead of the argonaut with a sheepskin in his hand and a blue gown on was looking out to sea and sitting staring on his forehead was the rat who could speak and his exact words were these chips ahoy old boy we're pretty well eat them too and we'll drown the crew and we'll eat them too here i always became exceedingly faint and would have asked for water but that i was speechless the ship was bound for the indies and if you don't know where that is you walk to it and angels will never love you here i felt myself an outcast from a future state the ship set sail that very night and she sailed and sailed and sailed chip's feelings were dreadful nothing ever equaled his terrors no wonder at last one day he asked leave to speak to the admiral the admiral gave leave chips went down on his knees in the great state cabin your honor unless your honor without a moment's loss of time make sail for the nearest shore this is a doomed ship and her name is the coffin young man your words are a madman's words your honor no they're nibbling us away they your honor them dreadful rats dust and hollowness where solid oak ought to be rats nibbling a grave for every man on board oh does your honor love your lady and your pretty children yes my man to be sure then for god's sake make for the nearest shore for at this present moment the rats are all stopping in their work and are all looking straight towards you with bare teeth and are all saying to one another that you shall never 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 see your lady and your children more my poor fellow you are a case for the doctor sentry take care of this man so he was bled and he was blistered and he was this and that for six whole days and nights so then he again asked leave to speak to the admiral the admiral gave leave he went down on his knees in the great state cabin now admiral you must die you took no warning you must die the rats are never wrong in their calculations and they make out that they'll be through at twelve to-night so you must die with me and all the rest and so at twelve o'clock there was a great leak reported in the ship and a torrent of water rushed in and nothing could stop it and they all went down every living soul and what the rats being water rats left of chips at last floated to shore and sitting on him was an immense overgrown rat laughing that dived when the corpse touched the beach and never came up and there was a deal of seaweed on the remains and if you get thirteen bits of seaweed and dry them and burn them in the fire they will go off like in these thirteen words as plain as plain can be a lemon has pips and a yard has ships and i've got chips the same female bard descended possibly from those terrible old scalds who seem to have existed for the express purpose of addling the brains of mankind when they begin to investigate languages make a standing pretense which greatly assisted in forcing me back to a number of hideous places that i would by all means have avoided 
the pretense was that all her ghost stories had occurred to her own relations politeness toward a meritorious family therefore forbade my doubting them and they acquired a, an air of authentication that impaired my digestive powers for life there was a narrative concerning an unearthly animal foreboding death which appeared in the open street to a parlour-maid who went to fetch the beer for supper first as i now recall it assuming the likeness of a black dog and gradually rising on its hind legs and swelling into the semblance of some quadruped greatly surpassing a hippopotamus which apparition not because i deemed it the least improbable but because i felt it to be really too large to bear i feebly endeavoured to explain away but on mercy's retorting with wounded dignity that the parlour-maid was her own sister-in-law i perceived there was no hope and resigned myself to this zoological phenomena as one of my many pursuers there was another narrative describing the apparition of a young woman who came out of a glass case and haunted another young woman until the other young woman questioned it and elicited that its bones lord to think of its being so particular about its bones were buried under the glass case whereas she required them to be interred with every undertaking solemnity up to twenty four pound ten in another particular place of this narrative i considered i had a personal interest in disproving because we had glass cases at home and how otherwise was i to be guaranteed from the intrusion of young women requiring me to bury them up to twenty-four pound ten when i had only two pence a week but my remorseless nurse cut the ground from under my tender feet by informing me that she was the other young woman and i couldn't say i don't believe you it was not possible such are a few of the uncommercial journeys that I was forced to make against my will when I was very young and unreasoning, and really, as to the latter part of them, it is not so very long ago, now I come to think of it, that I was asked to undertake them once again with a steady countenance. End of chapter 15